The first order of business, it's always going to come down to awareness. Like, how are you imagining your future? And if it's fundamentally pessimistic, like things don't work out, then let's recognize that there's a moment to be able to get better at it, you know, to shift it. And the data is really strong about why optimism is an important function for health, um, performance, well-being. And so the first order of business, like I said, is always going to be awareness. It's where mindfulness and meditation, journaling and conversations with wise men and women are really important. Because if you're not aware of the way you're thinking about the future, (laughs) you can't change it. You determine your experience in life. You're an agent in this, as opposed to at the whip's end of your external world. And I haven't met a world-class thinker or doer that isn't fundamentally optimistic. That's Dr. Michael Gervais. And this is episode 550 of The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Okay, so a couple questions I want to ask today to posit for your consideration. How do world-class athletes, artists, and top business leaders organize their inner lives to expand the edges of their potential? What are the frameworks and the key mental skills and models that are needed to excel in those intents, those all or nothing, make it or break it moments. How do change makers find peace, find grounding, or even joy in the most intensely stressful, critical moments of their lives and their careers? Well, today, we're going to explore these questions, these ideas, in a conversation with one of my very favorite people, one of the few, if not the only person on the planet most qualified to speak about such matters. My friend, Dr. Michael Gervais, returning for his fourth appearance on the podcast. If you live in a wormhole and have never heard of this incredible man, I suggest you mine the RRP archive and give episodes 120, 252, and 366 a spin. That's about six hours that go deep into Michael's story and his groundbreaking work in the sports psychology arena. But the basic gist is that When it comes to optimal human performance, purpose, and passion, Dr. Gervais is the dude. As a sports psychologist, he works in the trenches of consequential high-stakes environments where there's no luxury for mistakes, for hesitation, or failure to respond. His clientele includes people like Felix Baumgartner, who was the guy who jumped from space, professional sports teams like the Seattle Seahawks, basically the most prolific Olympic and professional athletes, MVPs in every major sport, high-level military, internationally acclaimed artists and musicians, Fortune 100 CEOs, you get the idea. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, 
that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics. And just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor, Go Brewing. I am sober. I don't drink. And I devoted so many episodes of this podcast to the unreal benefits of an alcohol-free lifestyle. Why? Because even if you don't have issues with booze and suds, no amount of alcohol is good for you. At a minimum, it wreaks havoc on your sleep and produces a hangover that destroys your energy, your mood, and your focus. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down. But no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews, minus the alcohol, fewer calories, and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm going to tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go, and it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own NA beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia, and he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal 
designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, back to Dr. Gervais. Unlike our previous conversations, today's conversation is not centered around Olympic athletes or other sports stars or what it takes mentally and emotionally to jump out of a plane without a parachute. It is perhaps a more relatable exchange about how all of us can better navigate this wild, ever-changing, some might call it dumpster fire year we call 2020. And unfortunately, the years of pandemic, political, and planetary turmoil that are likely to follow. Who better, I ask, who better to ground and guide us through these turbulent times than a psychologist who literally specializes in shepherding people through high-stress environments. So today's conversation is about working through all of this, working through pain and how suffering is actually integral to the human experience. We talk about understanding trauma and the way it is impacting your life. It's about the difference between purpose and vision and a reexamination of the role of sport in our society given the pandemic. It's also about optimism and how optimism can serve us even in the darkest times. And I promise there's no empty platitudes. This is not about shoving a handful of bullshit positivity down your throat. Michael always keeps it real. And finally, we talk about his new audio book, which is an awesome listen in this moment. It's called Compete to Create. It's an Audible original. Seriously recommend checking it out. Personally, I tend to vacillate between doom and despair and whiffs of positivity. And this book, this listen really has helped ground me. And I think it'll help all of you guys as well. It's hard being a human in 2020. Don't underestimate the circumstances, but know that there is a light out and we're gonna find it together. So this is me and Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Michael Gervais is back in the house, round four. I can't believe it. You've changed my life. Come on. Yeah. Look what you've built. It's incredible, man. I'm so proud of you. You're impacting so many lives. And I'm just, I'm in awe of the quality of content that you put out and how practical and helpful it is to so many people. And it's been a delight and a pleasure to watch you do oh, that from man. afar. That means a lot to me. I, I really, I don't say that lightly that you changed my life. It, it was super simple and it was benign. And I never would have thought that this medium, this intimate conversation between two people would be able to fundamentally shape, you know, how I think about 
not only humanity, but business and connection with other people. And so uh, that, that, uh, that afternoon that we sat in my office, like that changed my life. So I appreciate mm, you, brother. That's cool. Well, it was immediately evident to me, and I've said this to you before, that you have a natural gift for this and that it seemed only only you know appropriate that you would launch your own show. Yeah. Like you're so good at it. <laughs> well, and you yeah. have this like yeah, man. ability to just get right to the heart of things immediately. Like you cut through all the bullshit and you see what other people don't see. And when you listen to your show, you get a glimpse of that. And I'm always like, oh man, like, cause we have a lot of crossover in our guests. So like, if I'm preparing for someone, I'm like, oh, he was on mics. I got to listen to this. Like this happened with, Apollo Ono recently, cause he came on my show Legend. and I listened to your conversation with him and I'm like, I, I'm not gonna be able to do that. Oh, come on, that, that's not even close. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, yeah, there are some advantages of being a psychologist yeah. that, that play yeah. up. And you so have a training that I don't have. Well, you know, that being said, there's so much about just being authentically curious about the person that's in front of you. And I'll, I'll tell you some of the frames I come from, if that's useful. Mm-hmm. Sure. Unconditional positive yeah, regard. Pod, pod, podcast tutorial from, the, from the master. No, 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 no. I'm no, gonna I, find some the, mastery here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so unconditional positive regard for the other. You have that. Mm. You, that's how you've treated me in, in our first conversation. Unconditional positive regard for the other. And I think that as a philosophical note for how we engage with humans, that that is born out of the um, psychologist and the... Um, the theory called Rogerian psychology, Carl Rogers, mm. unconditional positive regard. And if you just stay there, I think it ends up paying dividends for both. Yeah. I mean, I never thought a bit about it in that kind of context, but I do. Like, I only have people on that I'm genuinely curious about. Yeah. And I've been in situations where a bunch of people are like, oh, you gotta have this person on and I'm not feeling it, but I feel pressured and not pressured, but like, well, everyone else seems to think this will be great. And I've learned that if I'm not feeling it myself, it doesn't mean that they're not a great guest for somebody's show. I'm just not the right cipher or host to mm-hmm. bring out the best in that person. Oh, that's a cool approach. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm curious what you're searching for right now. What is it? That look at, you, look at you, I can't you, help myself. You, you right? did. Yeah. <laughs> you are, I'm not going to let you turn the table already. I'm going to do your show later, man. All right, let, let's do that. But just as a high note, like, uh-huh. what is it that you're you're going after right now to try to better understand? Mm. Well, a couple things. I mean, the first thing I would say is I'm starting to put more attention on the guests that I'm seeking out because I, I really haven't done that from a vision or systemic approach. It's it's somewhat reactive and very much impulsive. Like I'll just come across somebody and I'm like, oh, they're cool and I'll do that. And I don't put, I don't like put on my calendar, okay, I have to book these people and I gotta seek them out and track them down. Like it, it all just kind of happens organically and that seemed to work. But I think the show could benefit from be, me approaching it from a little bit more of a mindful, intentional perspective. So Mm. I'm putting my focus on that. And also most of the conversations that I've had historically have been pretty evergreen. They stand outside the context of of time and culture. I could put them up at any moment and they would be fine. But the world changed in some pretty fundamental ways this past year. And I felt called to 
participate in that conversation in a more contemporaneous way. So now every two weeks, I'm doing a conversation with my friend Adam Skolnick, who co-wrote David Goggin's book and is a New York Times contributor, journalist, adventurer, environmentalist. And we talk about kind of things that are happening in the now. Um, so that's new. And that's been kind of a little bit of a, a, a growth curve, getting used to that and putting myself out, out there in a new and different way, because this has always been about the guest. But with these particular conversations, that focus gets flipped a little bit more on me. I've loved it. I've loved so, following what you're doing. Yeah, thanks, that's cool. Man. Yeah. Nice work. So yeah, that's that's where my head's at. But you know, I, I I have been spending a lot of time paying attention to what's going on in America and across the world right now. And it's very unique. It's concerning. I think there's opportunity in it as well. So why don't we start with just your thoughts on on you know how you feel about what's what's happening right now and and how you're thinking about it from a psychologist's perspective in terms of how to navigate it in a healthy way. Cool. I think that one is, let's put a little fine point on psychologists for just a moment, is that there's general psychology, you know, there's child psychology, and then I've cut my teeth in sports psychology, mm -hmm. sports slash performance, and then a subspecialty, if you will, in consequential environments. So if there was such a thing as high stakes psychology, that would kind of be where I'd sit. So inside of that, what does that mean? My unique experience is that I've spent deep time with people that are in the most consequential, the highest stress environments known to humans. I'm finding incredible portability right now from those insights and practices for the rest of us. Because we're all in some form or another in a, in a higher stakes environment. Oh, right now, the stress levels... Well, if we just look at some basic data, suicide, uh, suicide ideation and actual suicide are up. Anxiety, depression, addiction, all curving, you know, hockey stick type arc stuff. Um, so we're seeing mental health and the echo of mental health is gonna be here for a while. The mental health concerns and the echo from what's happening right now, both from an awakening from the social injustice and, and the systemic racism and, and individual racism that's taking place, um, as well as a illness that we're struggling with, you know? And so mental health is important. And I have, I, I don't think I'm the most, I'd like to think I am, but I'm not the most compassionate person. You know, I'm more of a systems thinker mm -hmm. and I really love getting into kind of what the heart and the truth of something is and understanding how we can grow and be authentic in that growth arc towards the reaches of what is possible. Mm. So that that's not like, I'm not this compassionate, heartfelt, high drive, empathetic person. I'd like to be, I, I need to, I, I've been working on that my whole life, but I'm flooded with it now, mm. right? I'm feeling what people are feeling and I'm scared. You know, I'm nervous for people. And then my friends that are listening to this right now are saying, dude, you're so bullish and optimistic about the future. What are you talking yeah. about? So I've got both of those yeah. that are playing forward right now. So I vacillate. I vacillate from despair to optimism. And I think on that, that scale of systems thinking to kind of feeling my way in an empathetic 
fashion. I'm more on the empathy side. I could I could benefit from a little bit more systems thinking, as I just <laughs> explained to you, and I feel it deeply. You know, it's it, and 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 I feel I've said this before also, but. I'm, I'm essentially introverted. I'm fine being alone. You know, I like to lock myself up in a cave and do my thing. And I thought, I've been training for this my whole life, man. I got this. this, this everyone's going to be out there suffering and I'm going to thrive. But it's really worn thin and not being able to see your friends and, you know, not being able to plan for the future or have specific things to look forward to is is very difficult. But from a personal perspective, the hardest part has been trying to parent two teenage daughters through this who mm. are really having a hard time. Mm. And it's been, you know. When you say hard time, you mean like mental health? Mental health, yeah. yeah right. Yeah, I I've mean, got a extroverted 16 yep. year old who wants to be with her friends and is in art school and loves the tactile practical aspect of her craft, which has been stripped away from her. And now she's on Zoom from eight to four and then has to do her homework on the computer all in the home, you know, and another, 13-year-old daughter who is very much an introvert, but the deprivation of external stimuli is causing, you know, some real mental strain on her. And I feel powerless to be of service to yeah. how to help them figure this out. I mean- And I'm just, it, it just breaks my heart. It does, yeah. I think the fact that you're um, aware of it is kind of step one. Because some people, the old model of, let's call it, well, hold on, let me back up. No one's getting through this world without facing down trauma. Big trauma, big T or small T. So suffering is part of the, the experience that we're, we have. Mm -hmm. It's a shared experience that we have. The word trauma ends up, takes suffering and puts a little finer point on it, right? But what we're talking about is suffering. Now, that being said, let's call it 1980 model. Suck it up, harden up, figure it out, go back to work. Come on, what's wrong with you? Like those are the messages that we were giving kids when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you got those messages, but you know. Pretty much. Yeah, definitely yeah. like the narrative, the social narrative was that, whether it was in, in the house or not. And right now what's taking place is very different. The fact that you're like, I'm really concerned about the da da da, you know, right. Step one, awareness. <laughs> Always is gonna start there. And whatever practices that we can put in place to be able to increase our awareness, we're onto something. Mm -hmm. Step two is be grounded next to the person that you love. And so I th that's what showed up for me for years, working with some of the best in the world uh, in their craft and some people that are aspiring to be, is that when they rattle and I've worked my ass off to be grounded, that gift, whether it's an emotional rattle or something else that's taking, usually when we rattle, it's emotional. Mm -hmm. But there's, my mentors taught that to me at a young age that when I would be melting or unraveling or frustrated or scared, and this is Gary de Blasio was my mentor for a long time, but like since I was 16, and he just look at me because he knew me and he just looked right into me and he's like, I see you. And he's like, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. As I'm melting down, frustrated, scared, whatever, trying to find the words to say that I'm scared, but I'm really just using frustration as the vehicle, the unfortunate vehicle of talking about fear and, and sadness. And man, just have someone next to you that sees you and gets you, that in and of itself probably explains why 70% of treatment effects in small room psychology take place from rapport. The relationship in and of itself accounts for, we believe, about 70% of change. 
not the advice or the counseling, just yep. being there. Yeah. Listening, seeing, understanding. And then if you've got some really cool tactics and strategies that you can layer on top of it, that only accounts for 20 to 30% mm. of the change. The impulse that I'm always fighting is is trying to fix it, of course. Of course. You know? And it's like, I yeah. can't fix it. So then I get rattled and I'm not able to be that calm, soothing presence. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> it's true, man. <laughs> I find it hard Ask to believe. Ask Julie. Yeah. She'll tell you. But you know, the other piece is like, but what you're talking about too is that um, you, you, did you say the word powerless or, or helpless? Which word mm, did you choose? I think I used powerless. Yeah. Which is, um, that's where it starts to get scary for the people that are supposed to be the powerful, right? So what does powerful mean? Not like I'm powerful and going to tell you what to do, Mr. or Mrs., you know, per, like not that type of power. I know that's not what you mean. But Albert Bandora, are you familiar with his work? Uh-uh. Oh, this is, this is going to be fun, Rich. So Albert Bandora, Dr. Bandora, um, living legend. He's uh, octogenarian at this point, Stanford. And he changed psychology. So uh, I, I, like he was one of the freaking top tier tip of the arrow people that I wanted to have on Finding Mastery. And mm-hmm. I, I got to sit down with him. Mm-hmm. So it's like a living legend that I got to sit down with. So his uh, original paradigm shifting um, theory was on self-efficacy. And so efficacy means power, efficacious. It's a beautiful word, not well used. Um, not often used. Mm-hmm. So self-efficacy, are, and he found that there's five ways to build a sense of internal power for people, to have agency. And agency is a fancy word for you determine your experience in life. You're an agent in this, as opposed to at the whip's end of your external world. But so what does it mean to be ag- have agency and how do we build efficacy? It's really cool. And without getting too far in the mumbo jumbo, you know all of these skills. I'm going to rattle them off. I'll rattle them off quickly. Um, vicarious experiences. So looking at somebody that is doing something close to what you want to be doing one day, just looking at it and being able to see that, I think I could do that over. That's how, oh, look at the choices they made. Just watching mentorship in that way, but they don't have to be true mentors, but something that's close to what you want to do. Mm-hmm. An example. Changer. What's an example? Just to, as an example to point to, to look to. Yes. Yeah. That's a, So that's actually a really important part of becoming efficacious is seeing what good to you looks like, or maybe great. The next is uh, self-talk. Knowing how to talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. If you don't know how to talk to yourself well, it's nearly impossible. You know, And this is where I think you recognize the kind of the bullshit of naive optimism meets the frontier of being in the amphitheater. Like it's got to be real the way you speak to yourself. And I haven't met though, I haven't met a world-class thinker or doer that isn't fundamentally optimistic. Yeah, that's a key uh, theme and point that you make time and time again in Compete to Create, which I'm on like chapter eight of now, which I love. The audio book. Yeah, yeah, the audio Uh, book. It's great. I love it. Um, I love it because it's comprehensive, but it's also very practical and understandable. And you just relate these tools that we can all implement into our life that are all lifted from your work and your studying and working with all of these athletes. Um, But what was really striking about it is 
is this refrain that all of these things are, are trainable or teachable from optimism to grit, to confidence, to calm. We tend to look at high performers and think, well, that, yeah, that guy's super optimistic. He always thinks it's gonna work out. He's able to control his mechanism at He was will. born that way yeah, or had great parents. Yeah, they ha- yeah, exactly. And I'll, I just, you know, I'm Debbie Downer or I always think it's not gonna work out. And that's just the way that I'm wired. Yeah, that so there there's likely a predisposition towards anxiety or depression or optimism or pessimism that we're not fully aware of, right? There's some genetic coding that happens passed on from a genetic standpoint from our parents and great parents. Mm-hmm. That being said, is optimism and pessimism are the two basic frameworks for how you view your future. It's kind of that there's there's not another one. Some people might say no, realism. Well, you can have a realistic pessimism and a realistic optimism. It is the frame that you see your future through. And so it's a trainable skill, completely trainable. So is the opposite of that, like helplessness and learned helplessness, optimism and learned optimism. Oh yeah, that that doesn't actually snap well together. But the uh, optimism and pessimism, sorry, both are learned. Mm -hmm. And which means we can get better at them. So walk me through the difference between what you just said and our kind of pop psychology version of that, like the fake it till you make it. And, you know, I'm Stuart Smalley and I'm gonna look in the mirror and and recount these affirmations. Like what's the difference between truly training somebody to pivot from, you know, a pessimistic outlook on themselves and life and getting them into a more optimistic state? Okay, so, the first order of business, it's always gonna come down to awareness. Like, how are you imagining your future? And if it's fundamentally pessimistic, like things don't work out, then let's recognize that there's a moment to be able to get better at it, you know, to shift it. And the data is really strong about why optimism is an important function for health, mm-hmm. um, performance, well-being. And so, the first order of business, like I said, is always going to be awareness. It's where mindfulness and meditation, uh, journaling and conversations with wise men and women are really important. Because if you're not aware of the way you're thinking about the future, <laughs> you can't change it. Uh-huh. Like there's, there's, you're kind of stuck. But I think most people are on that kind of recursive loop where they're not even consciously aware that they're constantly affirming some story about who they are. In a, from a negative perspective. Well, and if you challenge yeah. them on it, they'll say, well, you don't understand my life or you know, something like that. Like there has to be a willingness or like a crack in that, an opening where they can say, or they can see themselves from 10,000 feet and say, I need to address this. You're right on the money. So this is, this is the unfortunate insight that I, I wish it wasn't, I wish this wasn't the case, but I, my experience with working with people is that it's not until they have enough pain do they do the work to change. I'm a living example of that. You are. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about that. Yeah, you really are. And my favorite people are people that have faced the darkest parts of being human and say, okay, forget about it. Like I'm going, I'm doing this differently because they've got to the truth of some stuff. You know, the dark side of humanity, the suffering side, and they understand it. And so, um, that being said, is like there needs to be enough pain for change to happen because change requires real work. And this is why I'll say to folks, like there's no hacks, there's no tricks and tips, you know, for fundamental growth. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a mistake to look at the strong men and women on the podiums or the CEOs of whatever and say, oh, look at how good they are from a physical standpoint. To celebrate them just because of they've had outward success is the mistake. The opportunity that sits underneath is how do they organize their life? And it's a fundamental organization towards the man or woman or person they want to become. It's a fundamental commitment. And there are, there are no shortcuts here. There's no hacks to that. So how do we organize our inner life? Get real with like the pain that you are carrying from an early part of your life that is still part of the conscious or non-conscious narrative that is shaping thoughts mm. and shaping words that you choose and shaping the actions that you take. And without some sort of examination or some sort of honesty about um, the way that you shape your thoughts and your words and your actions, I think it's really tough to flip a fundamental view of, of how you think the future is going to go from pessimism to optimism. Mm -hmm. and I, can I add one more layer of complexity? Mm -hmm. Your brain is not trying to help you become optimistic. The three <laughs> pounds of tissue is saying, hey, dude, stay alive. Uh -huh. Find the threat. Find the danger. I, you know, you don't want to be taken for the fool that didn't jump when there's a, a, a lion in the bush. Is there lions in bushes? You know, like you don't want to be the fool that doesn't react properly, but you also don't want to look like the fool that reacts too quickly. Mm -hmm. So that's where we get these freeze mechanisms, you know, fight, flight, freeze, and submit. And so your brain is trying to figure out how to survive, and your higher consciousness, you need to probably put a pin in that because that's a big word, right? big phrase, but your your ability to use your imagination, I'll be more pragmatic for a moment, your ability to use your imagination to imagine what could be for you, counterbalanced to your brain's dictum to survive, to recognize the sources of threat and pain, real or imagined from early on, or, or that's possibly gonna show up in this moment, and it is ready right now to say, hey, flood your emotions, flood some physiology so that you can be on point and not be taken advantage of in modern times. Mm. So your brain is not trying to help you in this. I don't know whether I feel good or bad about that here and there. You know? So I think that if we said the good or bad piece and we said, well, that's actually the truth of what's happening. So what do we want to do about it? There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation 
with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Fundamental to all of this in Compete to Create is this commitment to self-understanding. Like that underlies all of it. Like you can relate these tactics and these strategies. Like here's your morning routine. Here's a breathing technique. Mm -hmm. Here's a way of journaling. And here's a way of getting clear on what you have control over versus what you don't have control over, which are all super helpful. But short of a fundamental commitment to personal growth and broadened self-understanding, these things are not going to avail you much. Right. Yeah. That's so talk a little bit about that first, because that's the most important step. Like in 12 step, step one is the only one you have to get perfect. I feel like in this context, that commitment has to be firm for any of these other things to to have the efficacy that they potentially can have. So okay. So I love so you're getting right to the truth of it. This is where it all begins, is what do you really want? And if you're looking for better, you know, because you know that there is something deeper in you, there is more room to grow, there's further to go, there's a deeper authenticity, there is deeper purpose and meaning, and you want that in your life. Okay. So those, those are the mechanisms that I've spent a lot of time trying to understand. And it has to start from that place like, okay, I'm sick and tired. This is a phrase that you'll recognize of being sick and tired. So I'm sick and tired of walking into a room and feeling like I'm just, I'm not grounded. I'm not me. I'm, I'm beholden to what they might be thinking of me. I've abandoned my history for the approval of somebody in this room. Mm, the FOPO. FOPO. How about FOPO? Yeah. You, you like that? Oh man, this is like my, this is like my Achilles heel. Fear of people's opinions. Oh yeah, yeah. It's it. You're not alone, brother. Like I suffered, I suffered FOPO for a long mm. time. It's probably what led me to, you know, this this um, deep, almost. Sometimes I don't wish that people have this. Um, I don't want to say maniacal, but this, and it's not quite obsessive, but it's this deep kind of want to understand how do humans work? Because I, I spend, I'm up all night thinking about it. It feels like most nights. You know, it's a thing that keeps me awake. It's a beautiful science. It's complicated. Um, but all that being said is that's where it starts. Like, is there more in you? And if there is, I mean, hold on, put a pin in that. There is more in you. There is more in me. So what do we do to be able to free ourselves up to express the, the reaches of our potential? What do we do? Well, if you and I wanted to go walk from here to New York City and... We hadn't done it that walk before. You know what you and I would do? We would go get with somebody. We'd say, hey, who's walked it? Mm -hmm. Tell me what to do on the Rockies when I get to the Rockies. <laughs> Tell me what to do when, you know, or help me understand how to navigate this type of challenges or what are the challenges? So you would go get around a community of people that understand deeper, that have done it. They've traveled the path. And that would be the second step. Is there more? Yeah. But that example presupposes that you have enough self-understanding to know that you wanna walk from California to New York. I feel like there's a lot of people who are living their lives reactively. They know they want, they, they thirst, they hunger for more meaning, more purpose, more passion in their life. 
but they're completely bereft of the tools or the means by which to connect with what that might look like. Mm -hmm. So they're shooting darts in the dark, thinking, I want these things, but how do I even begin the process of trying to figure out what that might mean for me? So I would say um, the way that we do it for, let's just talk individually right now for one-on-one -on -one type stuff is, let's say, let's use an extreme example. Somebody's really struggling, right? And they're highly anxious or highly depressed or they're really struggling in, in life. First, it's like, okay, well, let's, let's just stabilize a little bit. And so stabilizing is like, how do we help somebody be present? And being present is where your body and your mind are in the same place, focusing on the same thing. So that's what being present is. So how do we do that first? And if you're not with somebody that knows how to do that, how do you do that? Mm. Well, this is where meditation and mindfulness is like the modern science and the ancient wisdom of it is paying dividends. It's one of the ways to start. And if that feels like too big, like focusing on one breath at a time over and over and over again, <laughs> if that feels too big, then, okay, how do we get to that next place? Well, maybe there are some very easy ways to say, okay, well, I'm going to start being my best coach. And so now we're kind of moving into that self-talk thing a little bit. And the small Band-Aid kind of tactic, if you will, is be great at coaching yourself today. Mindfulness is about listening. And then coaching is more about self-talk. Like, what mm -hmm. are you going to say to yourself? So those are two kind of maybe mm -hmm. some ways to, to yeah. start. And then I'd say, shit, get your sleep right. Yeah. You know, it's super practical. You got your whoop on. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I've been, I've, <laughs> I see you've got yours I never, on. I haven't taken it off since I got it. Seriously? I love it. Yeah. 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 Can, can I tell you a funny story? Yeah. So I, I first got it when I was doing, this is your world that I played in for mm -hmm. a moment but it was an ultra that I was training for. I followed it. Oh, dude, I met, I met somebody. I met myself in a different yeah. way. I, I, I can't wait to- Tell me about that. Yeah, so- So you were, you were in a paddleboard from Catalina to, to LA. Stand up, yeah, so stand up paddle. I grew up as a kid surfing and I'd look, as I look west, there's an, an island, Catalina Island. It's about 30 miles away and I get frustrated with the island because it would block some of the big south swells that would come mm -hmm. in. And then also I'm incredibly inspired by the island from this one narrative, which was natives that long ago that were on the island would build their own canoes and uh, they'd pair up either two people or three people or sometimes one person. They would travel the 30 miles, come grab some supplies and then bring it back to their family. Damn, that's yeah. It's legit. It's across Shark Alley. It's across you know thirty miles of open ocean. There's some pretty uh, shifty currents that are happening in the Pacific. And I always thought, like, you know, hundreds of years ago, that was taking place. Like, man, I'm equally as inspired. This is weird, but the men and women that put up phone wires or phone poles in the as pioneers to places like deep in mountains and. I'm always like, somebody was here drilling uh -huh. into, you know, <laughs> Mother Earth right. here. Oh, I don't know why. But anyways, so I'm watching that. And then one of my friends, I shared that idea with him, like how inspiring. He goes, well, why don't you do it? Uh, no, I don't, I don't do ultra things. Uh -huh. I don't do distant stuff. I'm not built for that. And so he just the kept- self-defeatism coming so, I mean, out totally. right out of the gate from yeah. the high performance psychologist. <laughs> I thought I was actually working from reality. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I was like, I, I didn't think I had that. 
Mm-hmm. And I had very little interest. You're in tr- watermen, though. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the water, but not. But but if you think about the way I've organized my life, it's really more about um, in the sport world and working with the athletes I work with. More about intense adrenaline management. Um, and then it wasn't until maybe about eight years ago that I started spending time with people that were doing back-to-back stuff, like mm-hmm. what you're doing, mm-hmm. you know, like really distance-based stuff. Um, Carl Metzner, do you, Metzler? Metzler. Do you know that name? He ran the Pony Express? No. So it was a project that we did with Red Bull. Metzger? Ra- Metzger. I think it's Metzger. Yeah. It sounds familiar. It was amazing. He, he ran the Pony Express. Sorry, Carl, if you're listening. I'm sorry, Carl. Yeah. It was a um <laughs> it was amazing what he did. He ran the Pony Express like almost without stopping, mm. like back to back, you know, days like it was incredible. So that's when I first really got exposed to the Red Bull project of what it takes for you guys to do what you do. So a friend of mine held me accountable. And um I said, Yeah, okay. At one point I was like, Yeah, yeah. I could I think I could imagine myself doing that. And for two, three years in a row when the season would arrive, he's like, so are you going to train for it? Mm-hmm. Ah, maybe next time, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. And finally, it's like enough of your bullshit. And so we were training and um, I blew it on nutrition, dude. I took everything so seriously. I, and I want to get to the whoop story, but I didn't. I never did anything like this and I got my nutrition wrong. So on mile 23 of 31, um, I was hallucinating. Mm. And it also happened to be that I was doing 3.1 miles an hour uh, into a 3.1 mile current. Mm. So, so standing, standing still, still. At, for 47 minutes, um, hallucinating, mild wow. hallucinations. It's just under underfueled. Um, yeah, I mean, overtaxed, underfueled. I came out, classic rookie mistake, I came out too fast. Mm-hmm. And everyone told me, Mike, take your time, yeah. come out slow. And I, and I thought I was. Um, but I didn't really have this, the awareness and sophistication. I didn't have someone coaching me, you know, from a distance to do like slow down. That just comes with experience, though. I mean, it being yeah. your first, you you bit off something big for your first yeah. time out. Yeah, and this is the fun part about the whoop. I'll, I'll go in reverse order. I met myself in a new way at mile twenty-three, and I needed it. You know, I, I felt disconnected to nature. So I called this thing called, I called the project, Project Reconnect. Mm-hmm. And what I learned twofolds was like what isolation and loneliness means, because uh, I was there. I felt a sense of abandonment that I was like, I don't know why, but abandonment came up for me, which was a really cool way for me to get to some truths for me. And then the second thing is that um, I realized that I am nature, we are nature. So nature is not the ocean that I would go get connected to. You and I are the same kind of stuff. And so it was a recalibration that I didn't need to reconnect to nature. I need to reconnect to my nature. And we are nature. It's not the mountains and the oceans and the grass. Our humanity is nature and it's complicated and it's beautiful. So that was uh, kind of what happened. It was transformative, say the least for me. And then, but whoop. Back to whoop. So uh, one of the, Peter Park was a man who was helping me get right, get fit. Mm-hmm. And he's amazing. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know Peter, but- I know who he is. I've never met him. Yeah. And so amazing human. You guys would 
love the conversations uh, that you guys would have. But anyways, so he's helped me get right. And he goes, listen, make a promise. When you wake up in the morning, it was like a 4.30 wake up call. He says, don't check your whoop. Who gives right. a shit? Yeah. You're going, right? I was like, yeah. So I'm, I'm going. So um, long story made a little bit longer here is that uh, I wake up in the morning and we had to move up our launch date. It was just a strike mission. It was just me going uh, with a, a boat in case I got in trouble, a, a trail boat. And um, and so, uh, oh, so we had to move up the date a week early. And so I had, I had five days of travel in um, like seven different hotel rooms. And I was like, okay, give me a two day breather and mm. I'll- and <laughs> No, gotta go now. So, so I woke up and you know what my whoop score was? I don't know, 13. Yep. Was it? It was 13? Oh man, <laughs> I've had those days. I'm gonna, show, I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna pull it up and show you that. You wake up and you're just like, today is not my day. So, but it becomes a predictor of behavior. <sighs> so it's dangerous in that regard. So I didn't look though. Yeah, good. I, I made the commitment. And so that had something to do with bonking. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> like I was on fumes. And you know, it also reminds me of, and I think it, you know this probably better than I do, is that we are made of so much. We are capable of so much. And so um, there's so much more inside of us. And so it was a reminder of that. Yeah, that's great. I love that. I mean, I think that there's, it's beautifully told um, and I'm glad you had that experience. I think there's something very unique about the endurance pursuit that stands distinct from the acute challenges of some of the athletes that you work with, where it's about these like microscopic moments. Yeah. And that kind of, you know, and and dealing with like fear, you have you know guys jumping out of planes at twenty five thousand feet, and the kind of stuff that that you're more familiar with. But wait, wait without a parachute, right? Without a parachute into a sixteen story <laughs> net that he built. Did you have Luke on the show? No, I I would love to. I'll, I'll, I would love to. Uh, you guys would have a great conversation. Yeah, I'd love to talk to that guy. Insane for people that don't know, Michael worked with Luke Akins, who jumped out of a plane at twenty five thousand feet without a parachute and landed in a net. It's just the most bananas thing ever. Size of a right. two car, four car garage. <laughs> you know, like he's working with uh, with David Blaine right now. Are is, you involved yeah. in the Ascension project? I, I'm not. No. When but, I saw David do his little trailer, uh, I, I immediately thought of you and wondered whether you were involved because yeah. I know Luke is. Yeah, Luke. That, that's a that's a pretty. Luke's is more dangerous, I think, for, by far. Mm-hmm. But what David Blaine's doing is real. So it was supposed to be like today, I think, mm-hmm. but weather pushed it off. So yeah. Basically what he's doing for those that don't know, and he will have done it by the time this airs, but he wants to just strap himself to a whole bunch of balloons and float up into the air like a little kid, Yeah, you know? And he, and he has a parachute up in the balloons, but he's not gonna put it on until he's out of sight because he wants that visual. And then his, his idea is to go up to the elevation of Everest. He wants to get above 25,000, hopefully up to 29 and then parachute down. Crazy. It's what's, awesome. What's so amazing and unique about that guy is that he pairs his magic skills with these true feats of athletic endurance. That's right. The breathing and the cold and all the stuff that he does that makes him very special. Yeah, for sure. But back to the endurance thing. I mean, I think what I've learned and what it sounds like you got a taste of is, is that unique experience of self connection that occurs when you're beyond depleted and stripped of all of your natural defenses and 
all the layers that prevent you from being that connected to who you are and the environment. And there's like a percolation of self-awareness and self-understanding that occurs. Um, and then it translates into doing these things that you didn't think you were capable of. And so you become more connected to your potential, like the ceiling on what you become, what you believe is possible um, gets raised. That's exactly it. And you were asking earlier, like how do people actually get to step one? Maybe the step is to sign up for something with you because you're going to push them into the, like, you know, into the, that thin herd space. Mm. You know, and I don't know if you're doing that mm. much anymore with the current conditions or at all. But if if somebody could pair up with you for a little bit, I mean, <laughs> you'll take them there. Oh, I could take them there. Yeah, you'll yeah. take them there. And and what a guide you'd be, really. You know, and so that's one way to do it for sure. And I also think that we don't have to do extreme anything to get to the extreme awareness. You can do it on a pillow. You can do it in a conversation with someone that is wise, and you can do it by yourself in a journal. It's harder that way. It's harder. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Or you could take ayahuasca, I suppose, which yeah. some people do. Yeah. Um, we all have our, our ways of getting there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, but yeah, but endurance, ultra endurance has been this amazing teacher in my life. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily feel like I have that much more that I feel like I need to prove to myself in that regard, but the lessons that I've learned from that inform everything that I do. There you go. And you know, I think that right now, the lessons that we need to learn are incredible right now. Like, whole, like what are we doing with politics? You know, what, do, what are we doing with COVID? And what are we doing with, I mean, the, the perfect storm here between racial justice um, mother nature, like, let me, let me, let me speak on mother nature for just a minute. One more minute is that I bought this. I, I'm, I'm disappointed. It's too strong of a word, but man, I bought this sinker, this hook is a better way to think about it early when COVID was first announced. And it was like, okay, isolation, lockdown, war, you know, front lines, home front. And and I said, wait a minute, those are all jailhouse terms. Those are all like war-based frameworks that we're trying to do something against mother nature. Mm -hmm. So it's wrong. Our, our tactic, our approach is fundamentally dislocated from how mother nature and we are mother nature are working together. And so I think that if we could take a pause, and, and this is not practical, but as an at an individual level, right, to take a pause and say, what is my relationship with nature? And not to get too woo-woo about anything, but this is Mother Nature speaking to us. Mm -hmm. This is our planet saying, hey, you, we, I got something that I'm going to spin at you here, and what is your relationship going to be with it? And um, all that being said is like, I've bubbled up big time. You know, like I've... <laughs> Uh, for part of my job responsibilities and to honor the people that I work with like um, in a really significant way. So, but I, I just want to pause and say, let's get back to maybe some first principles about nature and how we're relating to our nature and the nature around us. There's a lot to be mined in that. I mean, similar to you, I've been essentially locked down, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, you know, not just the efficacy of our national strategy or global strategy, but 
how to behave on a personal level. Like there's there's our macro relationship with nature and then our interpersonal relation, each one of our individual relationship with nature on a macro level, nature is telling us, look, your your systems are broken. Your relationship with the animal kingdom is what created this. So I'm gonna throw you a curveball because you need to take a look at this. We're not really taking a look at it. Mm. On an individual level, there's very little talk about ensuring that our individual immune systems are intact. And part of buttressing our immune system is being in contact with a diversity of environments and other people. But now we're being told we have to remove ourselves from other people. And I understand that, like, and I'm doing that and I'm wearing masks and being a good citizen and all of that. But what is really going on here? And now we're in this situation where we've bungled and mishandled this to such a vast degree that there's no end in sight for this current protocol. Short of a vaccine being developed, we're just gonna continue to accumulate thousand cases a day or whatever it is. Uh, We're not gonna reach herd immunity in this way where we're kind of, either we completely lock down or we completely open up, but we're in this liminal space where we're not really achieving anything except prolonging the length at which we have to delay everything else in our lives. Mm. Yeah, it, I'm. It's um. You and I are going to be fine, and we're going to figure it out because we have agency. Back to kind of point number one, and we are using as best we can our community and our information from science and our history and, and being alive to want to do right, you know, f- for self and others, and we, those that have some underlying conditions some real anxiety, some victimization, some um, some depression, like, holy shit. Like, really, you can't go out of your house right now, you know, without being scared. Mm-hmm. Or there's a belligerence that you hide behind. Like, I'm not doing this, you know, but that's an over course, uh, overcorrection to, for many people at least, for um, a trigger point or uh, a tripwire for what it feels like to be told what to do. And so... I'm, yeah, it's a, it's brutal. Well, it's a witch's brew. It's not just the pandemic. It's our political yeah. environment. It is um, economic insecurity that's driving you know fear, division, vitriol, loneliness, separation. There's a giant swath of this country who feels unheard. They feel like they lack agency in their lives, and now. There, we're in a situation that's so acute that it's a tripwire. So we're seeing these flare-ups, you know, and then they end up in these videos that get shared on social media that is only exacerbating this vicious cycle of, of acrimony that is denigrating the, the kind of cohesiveness of the American experiment in general. It's crazy. Mm. I've never seen anything like this. Meanwhile, you know, we have these... Um, uh, you know, social protests over police brutality and racial injustices, and all of those are, you know, to some degree appropriate responses to, you know, a system that has perpetrated harm and, um, and lack of justice for so many people in this country. And all of that taken together has created this moment that is very strange. And is cre- for, for myself, it's like, there's an uncertainty, like, how do I engage with the world right now. And I find myself at times like 
should I say this? Well, if I say this, then that person's, you know, like the people are like afraid to speak. They're afraid to act. Um, we don't know what the ground rules are here. And it's unprecedented in certain ways. Yeah, I think I, I, I know I struggle with that same thing. Like this, this bit of a dance, if you will, because, um, but here's how I sort it out. And the dance is like, how can I say this or that? Right. And speak my truth and also um, not alienate people that I might make a mistake in what I'm trying to sort out. Cause I'm a learner. I'm trying to figure this out with everyone else. And I've got to get back to first principles is what I do. I, so what are my first principles that matter most to me? And I've got, and my first principles might not be your first principles, but if we can get back to first principles, those kind of guiding principles that shape in the most aspirational way, your thoughts, your words, and your actions. And if, if we can take a moment to re-examine those. And when I do that, I am so clear for me. Um, and this, I'm going to say something that's charging and electric. I'm not voting for somebody that doesn't care about humanity. And when I say that, I know that people are saying, well, what do you mean? He, of course, Donald Trump, you know, is, is about humanity. I can't see it. So I'm not voting that way. There's mm -hmm. no chance that I'm voting that way. You know, if I had a daughter, which I don't, I'd feel awful. And I might be offending you in the way that, because I don't know your vote and it's okay if you don't want to share You're not offending it. me. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know where your position is. I'm with you on that. And so I've got to get back to first principles for me. And what happens for many people is they go, let's say that there's somebody at, at our table that goes, well, I got first principles too. And my first principles line up with supporting um, Donald Trump for president. And so now where we find ourselves in a problem is because they're so foundational and fundamental that we feel like we've got to protect them, those first principles. And so now we're in a vicious um, protection, aggressive, you know, it feels like it's uh, a survival mechanism and a war that's taking place on first principles. And I, that's where we are right now. Mm -hmm. And so, so for me, um, another first principle is to create space to talk and to dialogue and to be curious and at the same time have an eye and a lens on humanity. And if we don't have that, I'm really not uh, interested in being in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I'm finding myself removing myself from many layers of conversations with people um, because I know that their first principle is so orthogonal and there's not an interest in anything other than defending first principle as opposed mm -hmm. to exploring. I'm okay to be wrong. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, my, my ego is no longer involved in what I do. And if my first principles and the way I'm acting on them are in error, which they will be at some points in my life, cool, call me out. I want to be, I want to get better. But a first principle for me, sorry to get on the soapbox with you, but humanity. Like it's a first principle. Humanity, empathy, listening, conversation, nuance, appreciation. Yeah, not narcissism. I know what that is as a trained psychologist, and I'm not diagnosing anybody. But you know what? When you can't see another person and really separate that another person is different than your identity, think about that for a minute. That's what narcissism is. The inability to know the difference that you are your own individual person and not merely a reflection of me. That is a disordered way of engaging socially. 
And so what happens when people can't see that you have your own life and your own experience, that you're merely a reflection of me? And if you're right now you're wearing a striped shirt, and I don't like striped shirts, I'm going to be cunning and sophisticated and making you feel absolutely horrible about how dare you wear, how stupid are you? Why would you wear a striped shirt? Like, please, striped shirts? What is wrong with you? And now to the point where at some point you're like, oh, maybe I should, maybe I should change. <laughs> but I've just berated yeah, you. Because I got the FOPO. Yeah, <laughs> but I just berated you as opposed to like going mm -hmm. to saying, hey, that's really curious. Striped shirts, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Crazy got times, me, Got man. me going. No, I like it. I appreciate that. Yeah. That you fired up a little bit. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that us, us folks that care about humanity and the planet need to vote in an aggressive way and come out. You know, make get the get the mailing thing right. Whatever whatever you're capable of doing in North America right now, um, man, be bold. I appreciated your co-collaborator Pete Carroll's words the other day How on about social it? justice. How about it? I mean, he he's been about this for a long time. Yeah, you know, and so uh, which part of his message? Did just, you just the speech that he gave in general about like, look, man, we, you know, this is this is real, and we got to deal with this. Like, mm -hmm. it it feels on some on some level, it's like, of course. But I, what, when you contextualize that within the the culture of of the NFL and how they've conducted themselves, you know, over the course of this, you know, crisis that we've endured, um, it feels bolder than it should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know. It's complicated, and I'm so mindful that um, I've got I've had incredible privilege in my life, and not from an economic standpoint. I didn't I wasn't born with a silver spoon, but the privilege and the advantage that I've had is um, a gift that I didn't even ask for, mm -hmm. but I got it. And so the first time I heard white privilege, I was like, "Get out of here! You don't know where I came from." Like, <laughs> no one from my family came. I had a edu college education, you know. I had we had a, a well on a farm that we came from. We didn't have, uh, our pipes were kind of busted up, but we, you know, we had to figure stuff out as a kid. You know, I still had nice things. You know, I, I didn't go without. And I was like, get out of here. Like no chance that I come from a privileged, what you think is privileged. And then this was like four or five years ago when that word was first introduced to me. And the gift that I've received from some of the players at the Seattle Seahawks and the rich conversations we'd have on the bus in between, you know, practice and on on road trips, in between practice and uh, and games and whatever. And when they broke it down to, you have an advantage. Strip that word away, privilege. You have an advantage. You call the cops if something's wrong with your home, right? Yeah, not us. Hmm. You know, go fill in the blanks. Keep going right down the list. And so I go, oh, I had an advantage. Yeah, I, I see that. Mm. And um, I want to be careful because I, I've had lots of advantages, but it can also sound like I'm starting to get egotistical in some of the, the things, you know, but the basic advantage of just being uh, born into a system that values white and being Caucasian, that's, that's, um, that's something to, to pay yeah. attention to. Yeah. Well, I just love that, that Coach Carroll addressed it directly. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, he's a humanist, period. You know, he studied humanistic psychology. He did his, 
uh, one of his degrees, um, his his master's degree, studied one of the uh, humanistic psychologists and how it impacts. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he's a humanist as well. Mm. How are the Seahawks doing? Well, we don't so know you're, yet. You're going, you're going up to the bubble soon. Well, you know, the bubble's pretty intense and um, we got to figure out what the right rhythms are. And so one of the reasons I've been bubbled up is to make sure that I'm doing the right thing, if ever, you know, that, that mm-hmm. um, but this is a, it's a dislocating experience for me this year. And so I typically I travel from LA to Seattle every week for two, three, four times or uh, days a week. Um, but to come, to do that this year is irresponsible. Yeah. You know, and so... Yeah, so the season's about ready to fire up. Mm -hmm. Uh, Preseason's happening here in a bit. And uh, I'm not sure at the time of the recording where we'll be, but what a massive experiment, you know, that's taking place right now. What's your perspective on how the NBA has handled it? Meaning uh, full on bubble up? Right. Yeah, um, I think that at the time, I would say I'd make that same decision, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'd probably still stay the course. You know, there's great consequences to this, consequences to family, consequences to uh, earnings for the league. Um, it feels responsible. So uh, there's 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 pro cons to both, mm-hmm. but uh, I'd feel safer in that environment than some of the other environments that yeah. I see taking place. I was watching uh, um, Matisse Teibel's vlogs on YouTube. Did you mm-hmm. check those out? No, I didn't, but I heard. So, yeah, it was great. Mm-hmm. You know, you like you just get this flavor of, of what the day to day like mundanity is, and mm-hmm. all the protocols that are in place, and how they really it really is a bubble. Like mm-hmm. they're just in their hotel rooms, and you know, getting tested and going to practice and living completely isolated. You know, in this weird experiment. And this is, in many respects, is um, there's something really important for all of us to say, what is the purpose of sport in society? Is it a luxury? Is it a requirement? Um, how does it fit? Why are we so interested in making this? Is it a business? Like, where does sport in modern day fit in um, our narrative? You know, because I can see parents making what I would consider risky decisions, putting their kids back into sport unmasked with lots of other kids running around. And I'm talking about like four, 13, 14 year olds, mm-hmm. which is not the, you know, they're super spreaders in many respects. So um, I'm not doing that with, you know, in my family, but so where does sport sit? And I it's think a, it's- It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, how do you answer that for yourself? Well, I think it's um, entertainment first. I think that fitness and health is different, you know, as a as a- as a component, but it's at this point, modern sport is entertainment. That's actually how they're classified. Their paychecks are classified. And so um, it's a way of living for people. It's their life. It's their passion. But from a social standpoint, it's entertainment. And that entertainment is a business. I mean, it's, yes. is, is it not business concerns that are driving this push to get it rolling? Oh, for sure. So, like, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. And I think also, when you, when you when you look at the kind of the the picture of any league right now, there's definitely business drivers, and when you think about the importance of business across our country and these pockets, it's really important to many. You know, it's opening a lot of doors uh, in communities, and then when you drill down to next level, um, coaches. You know, what happens to a coach if there's no? Yeah. Uh, what happens to the athlete's paycheck? You know, that's what happens to the you know, the equipment folks and the ticket uh, folks. And so 
it's a it's a larger issue about um, health. And if they can get it right from a protective standpoint, okay, mm. you know. But there's the. I think sometimes we forget just how, just because they're on TV and they're highly skilled, they deal with the same exact stuff you and I do, maybe even amplified. Yeah, they're, they're no different than the two of us. How are your uh, Olympic athletes that you work with mm-hmm. dealing with everything that's happening right now? I mean, I just can't fathom having that dream pulled out from underneath me when your whole life is oriented towards working towards that specific moment and then it becomes unavailable. Yeah, it's happening in college right now too. Yeah, like college football. College, like Stanford volleyball. Mm-hmm. You know, Imagine being one of the best in the world going into Stanford. And now the program's, you know, shut down. Like what? It's unbelievable. I mean, Stanford volleyball is like, the fact that it's crazy. It tightened. Dominant. Dominant, you know? And so it's happening at the Olympic level, the pro level. It's happening uh, at the college level and even in high school for sure. You know, senior year, uh, the hot recruit. And now this kind of hodgepodge thing that's taken across uh, the country. So that's, but here's, here's two examples that's happening at the Olympics. To go back up to your question. Uh, one athlete said, this is awesome, Mike. And this athlete is a absolute flat out world leader in the sport, their mm. sport. I'll keep gender and sport out of it um, for obvious reasons. This is awesome. I get to repair. I get time. I need time on my side. And this is, this could, I hope it sure, I sure hope it happens, but I think I was probably going to make the team because to, to make most of the teams in United States means that you're one of the best in the world. And trials, as you recognize, is oftentimes a higher hurdle than the actual games. Correct. And so I'm pretty sure I was gonna make the team, but whoo, I got some time now. Mm. Well, it depends on the individual because for the person who's coming up, who's maybe a little bit on the younger side, the little less experienced side, this definitely plays to their advantage. But for the person who's hanging on, and this is their last dance. One more year. I don't know if I can do it. Especially when you're just trying to like put ramen in the bowl at night. Like most of these people, they, 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 you know, there's this myth that they're all supported and have these sponsors. And Not that's true States. for only a very few people. Yeah. Most, I, this is old data, but I think it's it's about six years old that the majority of athletes or the average uh, for the United States that go into the games, that make it to the games Mm -hmm. are $150,000 in debt by the time they show up at the games. Crazy. Yeah. And you know what we do? We're celebrating. You know, we're watching on TV and we're like feeling so good about America. And that aspirational all in beauty uh, that they represent of us, like they're coming back. And if they don't have a medal, they're, they're, you know, did you see uh, the Way to Gold that HBO documentary? I haven't seen it yet, yeah, but you um, watch it. Yeah, it's I, all about that. Yep. Yeah. Whether you're atop the podium or an also ran, once that sun is set on that event, and you're overnight back to civilian life, mm. that transition is rough. I mean, I'm sure you deal with that a mm. lot with the athletes that you work with. Transitions are. Really hard. We're in a we're in a massive transition right now. You know, all of us are in transitional phase right now. 
But transitions out of sport, which you well recognize, um, is really tricky. And so that being said, there are some frameworks to help through mm-hmm. transition. Um, North Stars, realigning the North Star, realigning purpose in life is kind of where it starts. And so right now for all of us, that's th- there is a moment right now for all of us to say, okay, what's my North Star? What does North Star mean? Purpose. What is my purpose? And so that's a big conversation that I have with folks um, touch, touching a touchstone on a regular basis. Okay, let's go back to purpose. And I found that most people don't know their purpose. They can't articulate it because it feels so big. It feels like, well, how do you know your mm. purpose? Aren't those people that have purpose the lucky ones? And they just kind of knew early on, I don't have purpose. My purpose is for my family. Well, that's purpose now. So if purpose, there's right. three components to purpose. It's got to matter to you alone, have meaning to you. The second is it is bigger than you. And the third, it's future-oriented. So as you're trying to articulate, what is my purpose in life? It just needs those three factors. And then if that feels too big, you can say, well, what is my purpose for this month? You can thin slice purpose. Mm-hmm. You can thin slice it all the way down to what's my purpose today? And if you did a bunch of those in a row, you probably snap up to larger purpose. And so you can thin slice it. It's not, in that, in that framework, it seems digestible. Mm-hmm. What's the difference between purpose and vision? Like in Compete to Create, you talk a lot about vision. Like you need to have this vision, this, this idea of what you want your life to look like. And you have to put intentional attention on developing that. And that's challenging to me because um, I don't know that I've really thought that through very much for myself. We can talk about that later, but how do you distinguish purpose from vision? Are those similar? Are they two different things? Yeah, this is where like language is really important. And so vision is really about when you use your imagination and you think about what it's like to be you or, it's li- or what the environment that you wanna co-create to be. But if we just talk about you for a minute, when you close your eyes and you use your imagination, what is the vision that you can create about your best? You know, like what does it look and feel like? And so that's what that is about. What's the vision of your potential? Whatever mm. word we want to use that when I say those words out loud, like your best and potential, it feels so the language doesn't do it quite right yeah, because it, it, it seems comes so off a little, trite. Yeah, jingoistic. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. But it really is the mechanism that's underneath. When you close your eyes and, and create an imagination of what could be, what you would like your future to be, that's what vision is about. Purpose is the why that sits underneath it. Like what, what is your life purpose? And the vision, imagination, is what does that look and feel like when that purpose is um, is aligned with the man or woman or person you want to be. Mm. Does that help? Mm-hmm. And then underneath yeah. of that is like mission, like little missions. <laughs> Like little missions. It still feels esoteric, like trying to figure out how to drill that down into, you know, a a practical application on a day-to-day basis. And then let's complicate it because then you got like, what's your philosophy? (laughs) Right. Right. I got to have a purpose, a vision, and a philosophy. Come on, man. Come on, man. You need all of them. You know, I got shit to to do. That's right. You got to pay some bills too. You know, like, yes. But so purpose is this thing, like, what am I doing with my time here? Vision is what does it look like when it's firing on all cylinders? 
And then philosophy is what are the guiding principles? You know, is love a guiding principle that is important mm. to you? Is um, kill or be killed a guiding principle? Is um, capitalism at all cost? You know, win or go home? Or is it, you know, something on the other side, which is like uh, cooperation? Is it, um, uh, I'm blanking on like different mm. principles that, that matter. But so principles, that's your philosophy. Vision is what is it? When you use your imagination, go big, figure it out. Like not the what, but the how. And then what about values? Because well, that's, that's come up on the podcast a lot, like aligning your actions with your, what is your value system? And are you aligning your actions with that value system? It's cool. That's, those are principles. Values are yeah. principles. Values and action are really first principles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the, I would not separate those two. Seems like a lot of work. Does it? Yeah. Okay, hold on. When you use your imagination and you think about- Here you go, you're turning it on me. You wanna wait for- I know, it's wanna okay. wait for, our go, go wanna wait for the no, other podcast? No, okay, well, I'll indulge you a little bit. Yeah, so when you use your imagination and you think about what it's like to be you when you're like just at your best, what's that, what's that about? What are the words you use? What are the images that come mm. up? Effortless, uh, strong, capable, articulate. Mm. And then what are you doing to express those characteristics? Like when, now we're using imagination about what's possible in your life. So it's about you being that way, but then what do you think that is? Is it, um, let's do sport for a minute. Is it like, I don't know, being in the Super Bowl? Is it breaking records? Is it you know, there's some concreteness now to get into. Mm. Is it building a media empire for you? Is it, um, you know, being like absolutely a community-minded person? Like when you when you go there, what is? How does it start to create some texture, or some shape? Yeah, I, I think that, and maybe we could talk about this more on your show. But I look at like let's just take this podcast for example. So I approach this much like I would approach a race. I trained as a swimmer as a kid. I learned visualization techniques. I learned how to train my body and my mind to prepare for an event. And I carry those tools into everything that I do. So today I show up, I prepare so that I'm ready. I get in the right frame of mind and mindset. I try to make sure I get enough sleep and that I'm nourished and all of those things so that I can show up and be the best version of myself in this conversation. The goal being to have the, the most present, authentic, best version of what this conversation could possibly be. In the same way that when I would get up on the blocks for a swimming race, I visualized it so much that now it's just a matter of executing, right? It's different in that in a swimming race, there's much more that you have control over there's fewer variables. I don't know what you're thinking, what you're gonna say. Okay, this is great. And, and I have to just be present and available for whatever is gonna happen and not try to control it. So there's a, there's a relinquishing in it. But I don't think about like, oh, I'm gonna build this huge media company or I wanna influence this many people. Like I just try to, I'm much more in the moment of, I, I, I trust and believe that if I repeatedly show up with the best version of who I can possibly be, that those other things kind of 
take care of themselves. Okay. So awesome. You've got the the frameworks and the process to show up and be your very best. You know that flat out. You know how to do that. Yeah, I've been doing that my whole life. That's right. So that's baked. And that's where you just went in this conversation. So then I if we were if you and I were kind of drilling down, which we can we can do later, this will be fun. But if we're drilling down, I'd say, okay, so you know what? Here's a vision that somebody said, let's get the best racers in the world together, uh, swimmers. And let, let's see who actually excels. Let's see who can actually peak and prime and bring it amongst the best. That's a vision. And then, then if that person, if that person was you, you were creating that vision for swimming. Okay. And then I would double click about the vision for you and say, what, what is it like for you when you're building towards that vision? And you're like, oh, I want to be free. What were the words you used? There's an effortlessness to the way mm-hmm. that I would work. And so that's starting to shape a vision. Okay. Then I would say, well, what's the purpose of this? Why do right. this? Why, why create this vision for your life? What, you, what, what it is that you're creating, but who the man that you want to become uh, through this exercise? What's the purpose? And then you have to answer that. Right. And then I'd say, you could use values, but I'd say, what are your, what are your guiding principles? Because you're gonna have to make lots of choices. Mm. And then when you're making those choices, you know, uh, to be a savage in business or to be a collaborator, whatever, I'm being orthogonal, you gotta make these micro decisions. The better you know your principles, the easier you can line up your thoughts, words, and actions. Right. And then you'll be your best. So I'll do this with you, just super practical. My purpose is to help people live in the present moment more often. That's it. That's my purpose in life mm. is to help people live in this moment more often. And what I know is that to do that, we have to condition and train our minds. It's very specific. I love that. I, I would have thought you would have said something like, I wanna I wanna help people achieve their potential, or I want people to I, I wanna help people uh, you know, unlock their most authentic self or their best self. I think that's cool. You know, but I, those are broader. Yeah, that's less specific. Yeah, for me, because I, those things occur as a result of being yeah. more present in your life. Yeah, yeah. So, what my purpose? And remember, when we go back to the science, is that there needs to be three components. It needs to matter to you. I, yes, I want people to like be their very best, whatever. But you know what? I want to help people understand because this is the keyhole: living in the present moment and knowing how to condition and train your mind so that you can be present more often across potentially any condition that you are gonna find yourself in, shit, that's the keyhole for me. That's what gets my hair to stand up because I know what's possible for people when they invest in the inner life. And and so, so then the next is what's the vision? The vision is a community of people that are flat out flourishing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I wanna be part of that community. I wanna curate that community. That's actually what we have in the Finding Mastery community right now. And so because they're investing in their mind and training their mind and organizing their inner life. So we're creating a community of flourishing and that becomes this exponential. What happens if you got a bunch of people that are like really thriving in the right way? I don't know yet. My, uh-huh. my imagination hasn't gone there yet. I, 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 I wish that I could get there. I don't have that yet. And then I've got first principles that are guiding my choices, guiding my words and my thoughts and my actions. Mm-hmm. So I can be about it um, in any moment of test. There's a lot of clarity there. How long did it take you to arrive at this? Oh, I've been chipping away, 
chipping away, chipping away. My mentor, what's mm -hmm. it really about, Mike? What are you really doing? Chipping away, chipping away. Every time I read, I bounce it up against, am I full of shit? Is this right? You know, like, so it's a work in progress. It's, um, it's part of the ecosystem of my inner life that I'm bouncing up against those. And I'm reserving the right, <laughs> Rich, to change it too. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's been. But this is what you take to these corporations when you and Coach Carroll consult, right? You talk about this in the book, right? Mm -hmm. Working with Microsoft and these companies where you get people to really drill down on, on these things for themselves. Yeah. So we, this is a cool story. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm able to talk about this is that it's in page four, five, six of Satya Nadella's book, Hit Refresh. And so Satya is the CEO of Microsoft. So we're doing a bunch, of, I was doing a bunch of work with Satya and his executive leadership team. And it's an eight hour training. And subsequently we've trained about 30 to 40,000 people across their organization at eight hours a person on how to train their mind. Think about that investment. Mm. Oh my goodness. That's a real investment. So yeah. we that's why we built this online course. And the book is meant to be a tandem to it, mm -hmm. but that's why we built this online course. And that's the real um, mechanism, I think, to help uh, align my purpose. Is it's an eight-hour training to show you how to condition your mind and the practices and a community of people that are doing it together. So we got to the place where we talked about philosophy. And Satya had a moment. And he's, I don't know, maybe six months into the job. And he, uh, 17, 15 or so direct reports, 180,000 employees roll up to these 15, 16 people. Multi-billion dollar corporation. And he pauses, he checks the room and he says, our mission is real and it's big. And we're trying to do something amazing. And so what I want to do is I want to know you. I want you to know each other. I want you to know me. And so let's spend whatever amount of time we need right here to get our philosophies, our true philosophies in line, and then share them with each other. Mm. Amazing moment. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Running a massive organization like Coach Carroll running the Seahawks, right? Like creating a culture of openness and transparency where if you can get everybody on the same page and align, then you become unstoppable. And what we found is like a 30, 30, 30. So 30% in a, so culture, what is culture? It's, it's a pin, it's a word for, it's an emblem for um, the relationships. So relationships are the artifact of whatever the culture is. And so if you can create a container, a space for mm. people to have great relationships and you got a really clear North Star, you got something. And so it's a 30-30-30. 30% of the folks in, in your organization or your family are going to be all about the first principles and the mission, you know, and the purpose. They're like, yeah, this is, I love this place. 30% are going to be like, what are we doing? Right? Like, this is just my job, man. Let me go back to work. Like, and I, I don't and know, you know this. what? You are full of BS. <laughs> yeah. Like, what are you talking about? Like, uh -huh. relationships, you know. And then there's a middle 30. That middle third is the swing voters. That's it, man. To work with them, you know, to swing 15, 20% of that up, mm -hmm. you got something special. I wrote down this line from, from the book um, that, that hit me, which is through relationships we become. 
And that's another kind of theme that, that underscores all of this. So explain what that means. Because it relates to what you just said. Yeah, I think that it's we're right on it is that first the relationship with yourself, your relationship with others, um, with mother nature, through those relationships, you become the person that um, hopefully you are working toward. And if you're not purposeful about it, you'll become something, you'll become someone. And if you become a bit purposeful about it and you have that, you use your imagination or you calibrate with your trusted uh, community of mentors or wise men and women and people that you say, who am I, who do I want to become? Shit, that's a real question. So through relationships, we reveal, we become the person that we are becoming. Mm -hmm. And so that's the idea. And then uh, last little fun science note is that Harvard did a really, really cool study. Do you remember the study, a 75 year study? Maybe, I don't know. And they did it on fulfillment in life. So they tracked people for 75 years. And then basically they wanted to understand what goes into living a fulfilled life. Isn't that cool? So they j basically, they said, okay, at the end of the study, did you live a fulfilled life 75 years uh -huh. or not? And then they drilled down underneath, what are those practices? And one of those practices, um, there's two really important findings that I wanna share. One is that those that were fulfilled wrestled with the deep questions of life. They didn't solve them, but mm. they wrestled. What is my purpose? What does it mean to be alive in modern times? How do I work with money? What are we doing here? What happens after life? You know, what happens after death, I should say. And so those are like really big, challenging, grocky type questions. Those that wrestled with them reported to live a more fulfilled that's life. That's counterintuitive because when I think of the individual that's wrestling with those questions, I picture the tortured soul. Yes, that's the work <laughs> no. though. That is the work required. You know, like tell me you're not better because you've, you suffer a little bit in your training and you suffer a little bit in trying to find the right word to hit on your um, next book or your mm -hmm. current book. You know, like there's a, there is a little bit of um, work and struggle that goes into it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And the, the second one, the second pillar of that finding was uh, relationships, meaningful relationships mm -hmm. for those who are fulfilled. And it doesn't mean that somebody loves you. It means that you have someone and uh, people to love. Do you think that that individual who's wrestling with these fundamental questions about what it, you know, what life is and what it means, is that teachable or trainable? Or are people just, some people hardwired to be, you know, prone to that kind of thought process? Well, I think if, um, let's be uber practical. If, you're, if your thought processes throughout the day are, how am I gonna eat tonight? How am I gonna feed my kids? Um, yeah, the, the larger questions are indulgence. That's right. Indulgencies. So once you get that kind of basic stuff, um, as well secured as you can, it doesn't mean that this is only for the independently wealthy that don't need to think about mortgage. That's not me. So, you know, once you get kind of some basic frames of uh, stability and security for safety and shelter and food and that stuff, you provided the luxury to say, okay, what are we doing here? Because I'm working my ass off, you know, and yeah. I'm trying to figure it out. What am I trying to figure out? And I think it's a really important question to explore. And so that's that's the nature mm. of it. So with this uh, um, purpose of trying to get people 
more rooted in the present moment. Mm. On the front lines of this battle are these devices, which are scientifically devised to maximize distraction, to addict us, to take us out of the moment. Like, I feel like that's where we need to put our intentional attention right now, if we're gonna win the war of being present. Yes. <laughs> so talk about that a little bit. I mean, yeah. you open the book talking about that a little bit and tr the work that Tristan Harris is doing, which I think is super important. And I think this is a really big deal. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Yeah, I think so. And, and I don't wanna uh, knock technology at the same level. It's easy for us to kind of pot, uh, take pot shots at technology. Um, I'm not suggesting that's where you're going, but I just want to kind of say that because I'm about to get- Is that because Microsoft, you work with Microsoft? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Yeah, Asher, no. <laughs> no, but I think that it's doing, uh, it's changing our world and it's re helping us reimagine potential. And I just want to hit a quick note is that when I grew up surfing, we had to wait a month or two months before the magazine would come out with the new skills that the greats right. were doing. And so iteration would happen around that month, you know, like the young Groms would see it and be like, oh, that, look at that, you know, like that's what the pioneers are doing. Uh -huh. That's what the high performers are doing. And so human potential would progress at the rate of um, creativity, which is that, that it's not, creativity and innovation is rare. It, it, mm. it really is. But when you can see somebody else be creative or innovate, and then it speeds up that thing. Right, the acceleration of information dissemination is related directly to the rate at which creative expression and innovation can occur. Amen. Yeah. Look, look at your linear logical lawyer brain yeah, making lawyer. sense of everything. Good, <laughs> yes. No, I remember that. I mean, for me, it was Swimming World Magazine, you know, and I That's had right. the stack yeah. on my bed stand and you would just count the days until it was gonna be in the mailbox. That's right. And that was the only way of like knowing what was going on. And now that technology has advanced in such a rapid rate that, you know, we're seeing it daily. We're seeing innovations and creativity and, you know, um, thin herd potential pushing stuff happening every day. And so those clips are happening in a way that almost is overwhelming. And so let's just talk about how our ancient brain works in modern times. So our ancient brain, it really hasn't evolved <laughs> as mm -hmm. fast as technology. Let's be clear about that. And modern technology, they understand the brain and the mind. So the brain is the hardware to oversimplify this beautiful set of three pounds of tissue that sits on our skull. It's the hardware and we've got some software. Let's call it the mind right now to oversimplify this. They're better at it than most of us. And so they know how to manipulate the brain to be attracted to their technology. Mm -hmm. They know how to manipulate the mind to be attracted to their technology. That's their business. And they've got scores of PhDs um, that know how to create dopamine hits, which if you take a lot of dopamine, it would be, it's called cocaine. Mm -hmm. So they know how to get the brain primed for that good stuff. And I say good stuff to somebody, you know, they've struggled. I don't know if cocaine was a drug of choice for you or not, but- um, No. no. I was, I was too, I, I knew I would like it too much, too much so I yeah, never did right. it. Yeah, so, okay. <laughs> so, um, so anyways, they're better at it than we are. And they're certainly better at it than a 14 year old is. And when I say better is that as soon as we have some dopamine and some feel good stuff on our brain, our brain is saying, give me more, give me more. And what's required to that is um, some breaking mechanisms, some self-control, some awareness, 
uh, to pull away from the, the slow drip of dopamine. And that takes some discernment. It takes some skill. It takes some um, real grit to do that. And it's really hard to do if purpose, back to that, isn't mm-hmm. clear because it is so immediately a fix. Uh, what's the word? Just attractive. It's so immediately compelling. feeding and compelling is a good word that it's a nice, easy trade for that versus anxiety versus purpose. And certainly if purpose is not clear, this uh, invitation to explore a slow drip of dopamine is way better mm. than ang- anxiety, depression, or this muddled up purpose, or if my purpose feels like it's just to work in this system to make somebody else money, the entrepreneur, or the owner, or the factory line worker, whatever. So so, um, so what do we do? I don't have an answer. <laughs> well, it becomes incumbent upon us to create healthy boundaries around these things, which takes a lot of work. You know, because it is so alluring. You know, I think Mm. from a neurological perspective, what is the long term impact of constantly enduring these dopamine hits? Like when I was a kid, like a dopamine, you know, I wasn't getting dopamine hits throughout the day. Mm -mm. So, what happens when you extrapolate that out over a number of of decades? What does that do to the, the human psyche and the human machine? We find ourselves with the inability to be bored. And that space, um, boredom is like a negative connotation to space. And boredom means- space is the place of creative uh, spark and inspiration. Awareness, insight, yes. And so um, it's where imagination, you know, really can flourish. So I've been bored, you know, and it means that I don't really know what to do with myself in this present moment. And um, I'm struggling to be creative and mm-hmm. whatever. So we're, we're finding, I, I think that if you're thinking about your kids for a moment, mm-hmm. is that um, there's some cool practices that we can talk about. Like, um, like my son, you know, they, my son's school taught him this, is that you don't charge phones and technology. He doesn't have a phone, he's 12. But you don't charge anything in your bedroom. So you charge it out right. of your bedroom. Um, he takes technology breaks all the time because he kind of, he can recognize the difference between um, the the freedom to create in that white boredom space, if you will, and how kind of relaxing and rewarding that is as opposed to like the stimulating on button. He loves that on button too now. <laughs> so do mm-hmm. I, you know? So yeah. there's there's practices to be uh, concerned about. And at the same time, technology's here. It's not going anywhere. Right. So we need, we need to have a relationship with technology too. Yeah, I just watched my daughters and this is this is the vernacular with which they relate to their peers. Like they have to be fluid in this language in order to fit in and to survive. So it's about where does that tip into unhealthy uh, unhealthy relationship or a dependent relationship? Well, you know, when you and I were growing up, if we didn't get invited to the party on a Friday or Saturday night or get invited to go to wherever or go on that surf trip for me, uh, you find out about it kind of later. Yeah. Not now. No, it's happening in real time on Snapchat. It's like, whoa. Yeah. You know, That's, so. It's brutal. Yeah. It's really brutal. I, there, I, there's a, this moment where I realized my philosophy was coming through in parenting when um, my son was in this small, like he, he How is- How old is he now? He's 12. Mm-hmm. And he was not interested in uh, sport at this age, but he wanted to kind of play with his friends and it was a basketball team. And some of the other parents were um, 
were, were, were like really frustrated that these eight-year-olds were losing. And I turned to the dad and I was like, this is my philosophy coming out. And I was like, no, no, no. This gives him a great chance to figure out losing too. And he looked at me like, you're a loser, Gervais. Like, what do you mean? You want to teach your kids how to lose? I was like, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I want I want them to figure I out how to do that. I don't understand this thing about not keeping score. Mm. I do. I think it's- You know, you know why we're doing well, it. Well, yeah, I understand why we're yeah. doing it, but- it goes back to what you said earlier about the most interesting people, some of your favorite people are the people who have like under, they've, they've, they've had pain in their life. They've grappled with it, they've wrestled with it and they've undergone change. Like I know some of the most, my favorite people are all people that kind of had hard childhoods and really had to struggle yeah, and got, it's honest. made them you know really amazing individuals but how do you square that with your impulse as a parent to protect your child and you know, immunize them from any kind of hardship? There's an athlete that I spent a lot of time with. He was um, MVP a couple of years. I don't think he's not in the Hall of Fame, but MVP a couple of years. And I said, hey, how you doing? I saw him a couple of years after. Um, and I said, how you doing? And he said, great. You know, like transition was awesome, so good. I said, how's your son? And he says, he's good. Son was like 16. He's good. What do you, what uh-huh. do you mean? He says, you know, Mike, I gave him everything. I gave him the best shoes, the best coaches. I had him invited to the best camps. He was on the freaking floor of the NBA, kind of ball boy and just around it. He loves basketball. But I can't give him the one thing that I had. The drive. And the way he said that was, I had nothing. I can't give him nothing. So he goes, I don't know if I made a mistake, but I didn't have cool shoes. I didn't have right coaches. I was left out of the rich kid club. And you know what it taught me? I had to fucking fight. I had to scrap, drop my hips, figure it out. But when I got on the court, it was on. And I had purpose and I had fill in the blanks of all the stuff we're mm-hmm. talking about. And he knew exactly where he wanted to go. He had a vision of what his future could be. And he had this incredibly crisp, every day was a mission to get closer to the, to the purpose and uh, the, the vision. And he goes, I can't give him that. And so, man, that was an attunement moment for me. Like, yeah, I want my son to have a great education and this, that, and the other. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the peril of every, you know, uh, self-made man success story, right? Yeah. It's that scrappiness that got them to that place. And then their kids have a totally different experience. Did you ever read the, I think it was called G, Generational Wealth, uh-uh. G1, G2, G3. So G1 are the scrappers, you know, bold risk, getting after it, you know, big vision type stuff. For I'm talking about generational wealth. G2 kind of hold the line a little bit, but don't really grow it because they're afraid they were so close to the, the heat mm. of the, the G1. And You're then, talking about like the Vanderbilts of yeah, the world, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. generation one, generation two, you know, the sons and daughters. And generation three, <laughs> they kind of squander it. Yeah, They're like, yeah. I'm not close to the fire. It happens every time. And I got I got 30 million in the bank and I'm 14 million, you're 14 years old. Like, what are, you, what are we right. talking about? You know, so yeah, that's a, it's an interesting social study there. Mm. Yeah, I don't know how you fix that one. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe what, uh, what, what's his name? Um, <laughs> one of the wealthiest people alive. Uh, Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett, yeah. yeah. Not, he's not given his kids. Right. Hasn't given his kids much. 
bold. Well, that's a weird one too. When you make yeah. that much money and then you're like, well, I'm just gonna give it all away. Like, what is your driving purpose? Like, well, I, don't under, I don't understand that drive at that level when yeah. you're talking about those kind of numbers. It's a, there's definitely odd it's behaviors not, in there. It's, yeah. just, it's, not, it's nothing that interests me. You have you know? to, I don't but, know if it's still true, but if the stock market is up, he gets McDonald's every day. Have you heard this urban? I though? have, yeah. yeah. I think that's apocryphal. Or he and he still lives in the same house and that I, whole I, kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know right. him, and I don't know these, but it's a pretty funny story. <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. Well, like so, it's not about money for him, but then he's, uh, you know, it's it's a mystery box to me. Um, one more thing I wanted to explore with you: you posit the question in compete to create, like, is there a single determinant of success? Right. So, talk to me a little bit about that. What's driving? Success. I and mean, we just talked about scrappiness. Yeah. That opens up the door to grit and mm. Angela Duckworth's work and yeah, Anders Ericsson's work mm. and all these things that you explore. It's not that simple for me, right? That's the question. Is there a single determinant? And if we had to hang our hat on something, we'd probably say um, you're 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 likely not gonna ever kind of reach your full expression of who you are as a person without real work. And so that's where grit hangs here. So grit has three components. This is Angela Duckworth's work. Passion, perseverance for long-term goals. So you could replace, I like to replace long-term goals because they feel so mechanical to like the vision that you hold for yourself. Mm -hmm. So do you have enough passion day in and day out? And do you have the internal skills. So all of these are internal skills. Do you have the internal skills to roll with the punches, to persevere during the down hard times? And then is the vision clear enough? Because if the vision and the purpose and those those two words are not crisp and clear enough, the pain will win. Mm. When purpose is small, pain will win. When purpose is big, you'll deal with some pain. And that's the perseverance piece of this model. And so um, we could... What what we do in the online courses, we double down, and in the book, we we double and triple down in kind of some of the stuff. But to make it simple, there is not one golden thread for determinants of success. Um, but if I was to hang my hat on something, I'd say um, <laughs> grit is really important because it's got three main components. Yeah, and so I wish I could find. Um, I'm on a little bit of a pursuit to figure out: is there a golden thread that binds those that explore the reaches of human potential? I haven't found one yet. Mm. Yeah, and grit is teachable. Grit is teachable. Well, each all That's three That's what you should have told uh, your your buddy in the MBA about his son. I know. <laughs> I know. You know. Right. Yeah, it is. And so I feel like it'd be hard to teach though. Grit. It just feels like certain people have a motor. Mm-hmm. You have a you have a son like you you know I've I've got a bunch of kids like they're all different man and they all have their their motors are calibrated differently and that had nothing to do with anything Julie or I did. Mm-hmm. And I think that if when you think about all three of those, it's so mechanical to say like what we did. What's your vision? That's pretty mechanical. Mm. Requires some honesty and some imagination and a little accountability to sharpen it up. So that one's interesting, but certainly goals are relatively easy. It's an old conversation about setting goals, right? Um, and when I ask people, what do you think's harder? When I go into a room and there's a thousand people and we're teaching about, um, or even a small room with 12 people, you know, it doesn't matter, like, and we're teaching about grit. 
And I say, what do you think is harder? Passion, living with passion or perseverance? You know, dealing with the hard stuff. What do you think the room does? Mm. Perseverance feels harder. Yeah. My experience has been passion is way harder, way harder. You know perseverance, dude. You know it intimately inside and out. Most people that are successful, they know how to roll with some stuff. They are resilient. Can they get better at it? Probably. You know, that's a skill too. Resiliency is a psychological skill. Any skill we can apply some effort towards and we can get better at it. But you can't manufacture passion. I understand training for perseverance, but how do you train to be passionate? See, and I love where you instantly take it because you're an examined serious person, is that passion- I'm gonna take that. I'm an examined serious person. You are, you are. I think I'm serious. I'm gonna put that on my website. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You are serious though, right? I don't know. Yeah, you're serious. I'm serious, you know? I don't wanna be always serious, Mm. but you know, anyways. So passion is, um, there's two things that get in the way of passion. So consider passion, that that inner fire. Fatigue, that'll put a heavy blanket on passion and fear. So anxiety, the chronic looping worry that things are gonna go wrong and then the mismanagement of your energy system. Not sleeping right, not eating right, you know, not moving right. You know, that fatigue, that chronic stress, the ability to manage chronic stress through breathing patterns, eating patterns, thinking patterns, that that is the heavy blanket. That's one of the heavy blankets uh, that sits on the flame of passion. And the other is, um, you know, just worrying, like excessive worry about stuff. Passion feels like an unruly, unpredictable energy source that's hard to control and hard to direct. Oh, look at you. You got It's big in you, you isn't know? it? It's not a little flame for you, huh? Well, you hear a lot about passion. You gotta live a passionate life. How to find your passion. It's all about passion, right? And now mm-hmm. there's this counter narrative like that you're seeing where you're being told, forget about passion. That's a fool's errand. It's not about passion. That's like, you know, not something you need to be thinking about. Um, and I sort of sit in this space where I don't feel like, I don't understand where passion falls in all of this. I understand drive, I understand vision, I understand purpose, meaning, and all of those things. Passion just feels like something that's floating out in the clouds that I can't really wrap my hands around. So if we thought about it this way, if we made it uber concrete, which is, um, it's just that little fire in your belly to go do the thing, to climb the hill, to wake up and be about it. You know, it's that little fire in the belly. That's the way I think about it. Mm -hmm. And um, this idea of where the fool's errand is for passion is that if you just, that passion only comes from the special thing that you need to do. It clouds out irrationality. It can it can compel some bad choices. Yes, yeah, I wasn't gonna go there. Yes, Mm -hmm. I fully agree with that. And. But the idea is, can you live with passion anywhere you go? Can you have a little fire in your belly in any room that you're in, in any environment that you're in? And that seems pretty daunting, but that's cool. Like for me, I mm-hmm. like that. And I'm not saying go chase your passion. I'm saying be passionate. And so where does that, uh, that hooks around to me to an ancient concept. This is not something that I'm gonna stand on for science. 
that's the animation of the spirit. That call it a fire in your belly, but the Trinity is a really cool, beautiful idea of that many many um, spiritual frames kind of miss the subtlety about the animation of the spirit of of the aliveness that comes with being mm-hmm. human, the animation of that magical world that we don't understand yet. And, but we think that there's probably something there, you know, yeah. call it spirituality. So call it consciousness, call it fill in the blank. So, and that's what, that's all it is for me. Yeah. I want to be about it. I yeah. So, well, we all know, we all know that guy or that woman who, when they walk into a room, they just light it up because they, they just exude that in every facet of their life. When I see those people, I like marvel at that because it feels inaccessible, but also I'm jealous. Like I, would li- I want more of that in my life, mm. but then I'm not sure how to cultivate that. I look at it as a God-given disposition that they have rather than something that they developed with some intentionality. Oh, that's cool. I think there's probably a predisposition again to that too, but it's definitely something you can cultivate. But the way to cultivate this is to get the heavy blankets off of it. Uh-huh. So it's like a um, addition by subtraction. So it's it's taking those heavy blankets. I I really think that there's a couple great constrictors of the human experience right now, and one of those is fatigue. And so examining your recovery mechanisms in a significant way. Mm. I'm not speaking to you, Rich, but like the pejorative. No, I I I need this. Actually, I understand what you're saying. Yeah that this is one of the great constrictors because chronic stress uh, opens the floodgate for draining fuel, quotes around fuel, but it just drains um, organisms. And so if we're not psychologically skilled to deal with the chronic, chronic stress, no different than a dog, you know, when an alarm happens for a dog, there's a threat yeah. and they walk away, they, they go to the door, the doorman or the the mailman's at the door and the dog's barking, whatever. And as soon as that threat goes away, you know what the dog does. They roll their head a little bit. They roll their body and shake their tail. And it's like they have just physically let go. They don't hold resentments. We we don't do that. Yeah, I know. (laughs) So, yeah. I mean, so it's it's the recovery mechanisms that pay dividends. All right, we got to wrap this up, but let's close it down with maybe a couple simple tactics or tools that people could use that are feeling overwhelmed, they're feeling the anxiety, they're feeling the fear, they're experiencing the vitriol, they can't put the phone down. Leave us with some pearls. Mm, if I had pearls, you know, yeah. You got pearls. I got pearls. Well, I'd say- You got plenty um, of pearl necklace <laughs> underneath that hoodie. The hoodie, yeah. <laughs> I'd say this, I'd say- um, Order one is um, investigating your recovery mechanisms. Let's work in reverse order. Take a look at sleep. Take a look at the quality choices you're making around nutrition and um, make sure your hydration is right. So these are all restorative type of ideas. You know, like get your heart rate up in an acute way if you don't have an underlying condition. Like get your heart rate up where you're stimulating your brain to say, ooh, that's right, we do hard things. And so I'd say those are some easy frames to talk about, harder to stay current with, Mm. uh, current, consistent with. And then I'd also say that mindfulness is a place to begin. And if mindfulness seems too unavailable, it's as simple as setting a timer, 
following an inhale and then an exhale with all of your might and starting over every time that you notice that you're distracted. And the moment that you notice that you're distracted, just returning back uh, to the inhale or the exhale, wherever you are. Mm. Eight minutes is good science. 20 minutes is a little bit more interesting science you get to. The ancients would say, what are you doing timing this? <laughs> you know. Yeah. So um, I'd say uh, those are two kind of cool places to start. And then I go way upstream to say, start with something writing down um, your philosophy, the guiding principles in your life. Maybe start with your purpose. If those feel daunting, start building relationships where you're talking about stuff that really matters to you. Mm-hmm. And you know, for a long time, people would say to me, Mike, what are the... What are the best tools to invest in? And and this is kind of with this conversation, but I'd be remiss if I said it's a fundamental organization of your life to be and become the man, woman, or person you want to be. And then the second thing that I missed for most of my professional life is the importance of your intimate relationships outside of the craft, outside of your business that you're doing. Um, I wouldn't be the human I am today without those intimate relations. And my wife at you know, ground zero. So, um, you know, working on being, giving love and giving away as often as you possibly can. And so it ends up coming back around for the most part. hundred percent. Yeah. Give more love. Mm. I like it. Powerful Mike Gervais. Hey man, I appreciate you. You're welcome here anytime. Come back and talk to me some more. I always find it nourishing. It's a pleasure to spend time with you. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you want to learn more about Michael, check out his podcast, Finding Mastery. It's, uh, it is masterful. Can't recommend it more highly. Um, Compete to Create. Why is it just a, an audio book? How come you didn't do a print book? Was it just a deal with Audible? or? Yeah, it was an Audible original. Mm-hmm. So we went in a little bit reverse order. And um, I like the idea of not burning down trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but now I'm craving something tangible to yeah. hold. So we're going to get to that, but that's not for about a year away. Yeah, it's cool. It's really well done. Pete Carroll pops in from time to time. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, to drop some of his pearls. And then I liked how you you layered in some stuff from your podcast into it, which is what an audiobook should be. It's a, it's a dynamic uh, digital document. So cool. Um, anything else coming up? You've got this like f- online football training thing too, right? 11 on football or some Nike thing you did with Nike football? Oh, yeah. That's uh, just, you know, people are interested in the mental part of the game at mm-hmm. scale right now. And brands across the, the world are really interested in, you know, how do we organize our inner life and train our minds? So it's just a conversation that's happening. Right. Um, I, there's a swell happening in the business world right now. There's an absolute swell not from a anxiety fixing standpoint type of thing, you know, but like, hey, our people are our most important part of the company. How do we invest in them? Mm. Rather than teaching them how to sell better or market better, how do we help them live better? And so that's that's the part I'm super excited about. Right. Cool, man. All right. Let's do it again. Thanks, brother. Peace. Bye. international treasure that Michael Gervais. Two years is too long in between our conversations. I love that man. I hope you guys got as much out of that experience as I did. I'll be sure to get him back here again soon. Check out his new Audible original, Compete to Create. It's a killer listen. 
Hit him up on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Gervais. Let him know what you thought of today's exchange. And as always, check the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com to dive deeper into all things Dr. Michael Gervais. We also have another Roll On AMA coming up soon. Please leave your voicemail at 424-235-4626 with your question. I'm excited to dive into those and figure out which ones we're going to talk about and answer on the next edition with Adam Skolnick. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the show, subscribe, rate, and comment on it on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Spotify. Share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can support us on Patreon at richroll.com slash donate. Thank you to everybody who worked very diligently to produce today's show. Jason Camiello for audio engineering, production, show notes, and interstitial music. Blake Curtis for manning the camera, creating the video version for YouTube and all the little clips you see on social media. Jessica Miranda for graphics, Ali Rogers for portraits, DK for advertiser relationships, and theme music by my boys, Tyler Trapper and Harry. Appreciate you guys. Love you. See you back here soon with another amazing episode. Until then, be well. Peace. Bye.